Morning, everyone. My name is Dan Mike. I'm the Young Adults Pastor here. I've been asked to share the sermon this morning. But what I really just want to say is no foot race can stop this church from getting together. Thirty-five <laughs> percent of churches are in decline, but we can get here no matter what. That's I love. <laughs> Sorry, Greg. Where is he? I'm not trying to. What's the percentage? All right. Um, you know, we've been pumping up um, Lent ever since Ash Wednesday. It seems like every week somebody's trying to say, hey, let's take Lent seriously. And I respect, <coughs> sorry, I have a cough. I respect uh, you all enough to, even now, just, just thinking about this, just to ask you, what is the Lord doing in your life during Lent? And before I get going, I was just thinking, might be encouraging uh, for each of us to just think about it for a second. And if you can, I'm not gonna have like a big share time, um, but if you can summarize the experience you've had during Lent in a word or a phrase, what has the Lord been doing in your life during Lent? Um, and then just one by one, just call it out. And, and I think that could be a really encouraging way to begin. What's that? Amen. Anybody else? It's really encouraging to even hear some of these. I wonder how many people would have said the same thing, you know? And I mean, a little solidarity goes a long way, am I right? <laughs> For me, something I've been thinking about is um, Lent is kind of like a controlled frustration you know, like purposely frustrating yourself by not allowing yourself to do certain things or go certain places and um, and, and then turning that or channeling that in a certain way. And I've been trying to figure out, maybe is there some ways where I can use other frustrations in my life and channel it, you know, like, I'm so, t I'm just, I'm tired of having a frustration and then just saying, well, that's a first world problem and that I shouldn't be frustrated about it. But I am having chemical reactions to things. You know, there's things happening in my body when I like wake up and there's snow on the ground <coughs> this week. And it's like, there's a real feeling happening there. And, 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 and when I'm downtown and there's nowhere to drive, there's no way to get anywhere and there's traffic everywhere, how am I... That feeling of despair. <laughs> you know, and then I come to church and it's like, ah, we have this message about where I was, where I'm supposed to, you know, I was in a, in a bad place. Now, because of Christ, I'm in a good place. And sometimes I don't have any chemical, any feeling of like, I was in a frustrating place. And I want to channel that. I want to make that feeling of, uh, of, of hopelessness for the spring to come, you know, to, to work for me and remind me of ways of how I was in an eternal winter. That's where I was. And now Aslan's on the move, and now I'm because of Christ, I'm gonna have some sort of spring to come, or I was in an, uh, an everlasting red light traffic jam, and, and, and now through Christ, I've been given a green light, I've given a way forwards, and I wanna have those feelings work for me. And, really be able to sing songs like I once was blind. I was, 
and feel it. But now I see. Anyways, that's something to think about. Uh, the, the passage I've been asked to share on is John 15. Um, John chapter 15, while you're turning there, I have an announcement to make. Does everybody know about the prayer vigil this week? Starting on Wednesday night at six, we'll be upstairs gathered to pray, but we're gonna try and um, delegate each hour from then on to Easter to have an unbroken prayer vigil. And so if, um, if you wanna sign up for that, you can sign up on the website and take an hour. The way that it works is between eight a.m. and 8 p.m., we're gonna centralize the prayer hour here. Up in that window room up there, if you've never been up there, that's a prayer room. It's all decked out and ready for you to go have a time of prayer, take some friends or go by yourself. But from 8 p.m. or whatever, the other 12 hours of the day, 8 to 8, uh, we're gonna decentralize. You can pray from wherever you wanna be, in your own home or wherever you wanna go. And you know something I would encourage you to do is for those decentralized hours, double up. You know, I don't know how the sign-up works 100%, but I'm imagining some sort of calendar. And I would love it if, I mean, okay, so you wanna pray on eight or uh, 10 o'clock on Wednesday night, and somebody already signed up for that, well, bump them off, or, or try and go double on that. I mean, what, why can't we all get involved on those? And so I, I would just love that, to see everybody just feel unleashed and permission to join together with your family and pray pray for your city, pray for resurrection, pray for your heart to um, be centralized around the cross um, this, uh, this weekend. So, all right, if you've turned to chapter 15 of John, please, if you're willing to stand with me, stand for the reading. John 15 and verse one, Jesus says, I'm the, I'm the true vine. <laughs> I'm the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of me that bears no fruit while every branch that does he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Abide in me, I'll abide in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless, unless you abide in me. I'm the vine. You're the branch. If a man abides in me and I in him, he will bear fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are bundled up and thrown in the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory that you would bear much fruit and show yourself to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now abide in my love. If you obey my command, you will remain in my love just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and abide in his love. I have told you this so that my joy might be in you and your joy might be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, that he who lay his life down for his friends. You're my friends if you do as I command, and I no longer call you servant. Servant doesn't know what his master's business is. I've called you friends for everything I've learned from my father and made known to you. You didn't choose me. I've chosen you. 
appointed you to go and bear fruit, and fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. <coughs> this is my command, love one another. Amen. Let's get a sip. A diamond is a beautiful thing. Look at a diamond. Wow, I mean, that's a rare the stone. You know, they're precious, all kinds of. But if you put a diamond on a ring, it's not just a diamond. It's a story of love, of costly gifts, of commitment. It's set in the right place. It means something much deeper and bigger and more, and more meaningful. John 15 is a diamond. It is something that, uh, you know, just on its own, you can just look at it and just, it is so beautiful. And that's common for, other, you know, a, a lot of passages of scripture. They get, that just get, just look at it, taking it out of context and you just say, okay, that is just, looking at that is just a beautiful thing. But what is the place of John 15. I wanna figure out the context, where it's gonna sit, because once you put that diamond on the ring, it opens us up to a bigger story. What am I talking about? I'm talking about context. It's when, we, when we study famous passages of scripture or, or popular ones, it's so easy to just not do the work. When you see a, a passage of scripture you don't know anything about, it's way easier to just figure out, okay, what's the flow, what's the literary context, how's this working? But when it comes to something like this, it's just easy to just attach our own context to it. Attach our own ideas, and, and, and that's not as helpful. I don't, I, well, okay, I'm not gonna say it's a sin. I just, I'm like, it's just not, sometimes some really sideways ideas can, can come off of placing our own context on something. And so whenever I get assigned a famous Bible verse, uh, you know, like, I was asked to share at Trinity uh, downtown recently at uh, Psalm 23, <laughs> the most famous poem of all time. Um, you know, you have to really work at getting into the context of what's going on in order, in order to not just place a bunch of stuff on there um, from your own worldview and your own ideas. And so what's the context of John 15, this beautiful diamond? Well, the literary context works like this. From chapter 13 to 17, there's a section. It's called the Upper Room Discourse. It's very dear to my heart. It's a long passage of, of, of just teaching from Jesus, much like the Sermon on the Mount. And I know you might be thinking, okay, not all of this is in the Upper Room. Why is it called the Upper Room Discourse? I don't know. That's just what we call it. Uh, but yeah, it's, it starts in this upper room. Okay, what is the upper room? It's where Jesus and his crew ate the Passover supper. We call it the last supper. Now it's starting to think, okay, think of all the stuff that happened in the last supper, all those cool lines where he's like, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood, you know. Uh, uh, Peter, what does he say to Peter? I love that part where he's like, Satan is asked to sift you like wheat. 
but I have prayed for you. Um, where where, where he, he's like, oh, one of you is gonna betray me, whoever's dipping in, 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 with me, and everybody's like, I don't know who dipped with him. Uh, surely not I, Lord, I can't remember. Maybe I did dip with him. I don't even like that dip, I don't know. And then uh, everybody's confused, and then he's like, Judas, go and do what you're gonna do, and they didn't understand what he was doing. But uh, remember that line, Judas, go and do what you're doing quickly. He went out, and it was night. Okay, this is starting to, to paint a picture of the heaviness of what's going on in the upper room discourse. It's not just random theology stuff that Jesus just, just decided to say to everybody. John 13, verse one, says this. Jesus, knowing the hour had come, for him to depart from this world and return to the Father. All authority in heaven and earth had been given to him, and he, washed their, he, he took a towel and he washed their feet. The burden is on his shoulders at this point. He knows what's gonna happen at any moment, all right? Judas is, is walking out at any moment. He's coming back. He's gonna find them with the police. They're gonna arrest him. He knows this is gonna happen. So one, do you think the things he says are, 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 are meaningful to, are things that he, he knows, I'm gonna, right now, I'm not messing around. I'm gonna say some very meaningful things to you. Meaningful to somebody who's about to experience a really crazy night. I'm just gonna get a little tangential with this because um, I think it tells us a lot about who Jesus is. My uh, worldview right now is starting to think of movies like Back to the Future 2 when uh, Biff gets that almanac and he starts seeing the future sports events and starts saying, okay, I'm gonna get, you know, cheat and gamble and all this stuff. And I think, why didn't Jesus tell them something like that? Why didn't he say to, I, he knows he's gonna leave. Why didn't he give them answers? Why didn't he give them more like tips or more things to, to, to use to their advantage? And that's based on an assumption that he could, he could have told them anything he wanted to tell them. So what I see happening here is something that tells me a lot about Christ, and that's this. He doesn't really care that much about what his followers would do if they had all the answers. My, my American worldview, I mean, it says to me, dude, if you would just do this, this, and this, you're gonna be safe, you're gonna be okay, you're gonna be happy. And you know what that is? It's, it's certainty. Like, I, I settle for certainty so much, and Christ does not settle for that. He won't just give people certainty when he could give them truth. Uh, think of, like, when he's talking to Thomas, and the whole, he's, I'm going to prepare a place for you. You know the way. And Thomas says what? Draw me a map. I don't know the way. How am I supposed to know how to get there? I want, I want you to give me an answer right now. And he says, I'm not just gonna give you an answer. I, I'm gonna give you the truth. And the truth is, you know the way because you know me. I'm the way. Our faith does this is why I say this. Our faith often just says, okay, if you have this, this, and this, and know this, and believe this in this certain way, you're good. You're okay, you're happy, you're gonna be safe, you're gonna be saved, you're gonna be all right. And it just doesn't work. 
Definitely doesn't work on nights like this night where they're about to feel some really strong feelings, like the shock of betrayal, like uh, guilt and shame for abandoning Christ, or fear, like loss of a loved one, loss of a mentor, loss of somebody that they put all their hope in, disillusionment, confusion. They're about to experience all these things. You know what they need? They don't need certainty. Because you know, when you're in a traumatic experience or when you're experiencing a great deal of pain, certainty goes out the window. And I just want to prepare you to look to Jesus, not for answers, but for truth. Because that is going to, to mean something to you a lot longer than certainty or what we call certainty would be. He says things to them like, fear not. Believe in me. Believe also in my Father, okay? I've got this. He says things to them like, I've, so, I've told you this so that you might have peace. In this world, you will have many troubles. But fear not, I have overcome the world. He says things to them like, I'm telling you this so that your joy might be made complete. He, he is the type of teacher who wants to see what they're made of, not by just giving them a, a list of things to do, which is one of the things I love about this religion, about this faith. It's not just a list of rules. I mean, people critique Christianity. I hear this on, on certain podcasts or things I listen to. They say, why can't Christianity uh, just figure it out by now? They're still fighting over things. It's years and years and years and years, and they're still just fighting over things. Well, that is because we have been given we have been given responsibility. We have been given permission. We have been given a legacy and something that we're supposed to use in an ethical way throughout our life. And, and, and we're supposed to figure out in our time what this means. It's not just a list of do's and don'ts. It's a list of why. He says, my command, if you want to command, is to love. And you get to, you get to hold that responsibility of what love looks like. And he trusts us with it. So my question, as far as the context goes throughout John 15, why would he say the things he said on that night? What about what he said would be meaningful to somebody in a, in, in a way that would, would help them through trauma or through something that's uh, very complicated and painful? And any conclusion I come to, I'm gonna try and keep coming back to that. Why would this detail be something that is helpful for them? All right, so let's dive into the metaphor here that I think is so beautiful. He talks about a vine, he talks about a branch, and he talks about a gardener. I'm gonna start with the gardener. Um, I think that <coughs> I just haven't thought about the gardener as much as I thought about the vine and the branches. I don't know why, I think the vine and branch is beautiful, it goes together. Um, for some reason, never thought about the gardener. What's the point of the Why is he talking about a gardener? Well, one thing I think is really beautiful is um, there's a rabbinic way of studying the Bible. One of the, one of the seven rules of, of Hillel, it, the first one is called Calvachomer, which means how much more so. And it's, it's when, and I use this specifically in uh, ways of seeing God in general truth, general revelation, and ways of seeing him through metaphor. So this 
chapter happens to have both of them kind of at the same time. Let me show you how that works. Whenever Jesus talks about God as a father, right, or a gardener, it's not, it's not, he's not ever going to be less than that. Okay, so it is hard to talk about God who is, is so big and massive and huge and a perfect or and all this stuff, but when you, when you t- talk about him in one word, like God is a gardener, he's, it sounds like we're speaking less than who he is. So it's good practice to say, okay, he's, he's not less, he's more than that. So think of the greatest gardener you can think of. Think of what even a gardener is. I mean, someone who is in charge of taking care of this plant, making sure it's healthy, making sure it's safe, making sure it's gonna have, it's bear fruit, get everything it needs. All right, that, and then the greatest gardener of all time. God is not less than that. There's no gardener that's better than God at being a gardener. That's what I'm trying to say. How much more so? Jesus has trained his disciples to think like this. When he talks about, you know, you being a father, your son asks you for an egg, you can give him a stone, or he, he asks you for fish, you're not gonna give him a snake. How much more so will your heavenly father know what you need? He's perfect, he's amazing, he's awesome. If we just pause and just think about this, it is stunning to me. Like, can I receive God as a, like a great gardener who not just, he, takes, he t- looks at me like the way a gardener looks at a plant. Yesterday when we were trying to come to church, uh, my wife was messing around with the animals out on our back porch and one of them knocked over one of her flower planters. She has like 50 of these, she's obsessed with flowers and there's these planters. I don't know how many things are in there. There's like a million little pods and it knocks over, falls everywhere. Look, this, she gets down on her hands and knees and picks up the, <laughs> they're just starting to sprout. Picks each of them, puts it in a little dirt and puts it back into each and every single one of those little pods and then puts it back on the, on the sill, the windowsill in the sun and is just, and knows what's going. She talks to the flower. She, she puts water. She knows exactly when they need to go in the actual earth outside and how that's going to work. And, and it's her joy to do that. It's not a burden for her. She wants to do that. How much more so? You know your value. Sometimes I just feel alone. I just feel like, I don't know, am I growing right? Is this, am I doing the right thing? Do I have enough light and water? I don't know. Oh, I'm not. I, I can't believe that we have a God who's, who's, I can receive to be my gardener who will look, bend down his knees and say, I know what you need. I'm going to get my hands all into that and get it dirty and put you in the right soil. And I'm watching over you. I'm breathing on you. I'm giving you what you need. You know the gardener. Jesus notes two things about the gardener. He says he cuts and he prunes. I'll be honest. When I'm reading about this cutting business, I get a little scared. I don't. I mean, it sounds kind of. Uh, what we're talking about cutting branches off. I'm supposed to be the branch. <laughs> is that a thing? How is that comforting in this night? You know, like is that? It's just one thing you just want to drop in there. I'm speaking to you these things that you might have peace. Also. Careful, <laughs> if you, 
Gardner's cutting stuff, right? I mean, he says it. Any branch in me. I mean, come on. Ask John, though. I, I mean, I'm asking John, like, what is going on with this? And, and, uh, and looking at different verses that are nearby that, it seems a little inconsistent to jump right there. I mean, Rod read some of this last week in John chapter 10, 10 My sheep hear my voice. They come to me. I give them eternal life. Not one of them will perish or be plucked from my hand, and I am in the Father's hand. But that's a, re- that's a big time assuring verse. Or what about chapter six? Uh, when he says, when he's fighting with everybody about the bread and all that stuff, and he says to them, all that the Father calls will come. And when they come, I give them, and I, I, not one of them will perish. It is to the, the will of the one who sent me that I not lose one, but raise them up on the last day. We're talking about cutting stuff here. Well, I'm thinking that there are things that need to get caught. There are people that, that get separated or get, and I, I, I'm wondering if it's a little bit more of the character throughout the story of John of the person or people who seem like they're in. They seem like they're attached, they're nearby, but it's really, a, it's just dead. It's not, you know, he calls people a whitewashed tomb. You look good. It's dead inside. Brandon shared on chapter six uh, a few weeks ago or month month ago um, where, where they were fighting and talking about uh, the bread of life and he says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. 666, that's an easy one to remember. Six, John 666. <laughs> I didn't, it's just a little way of memorizing, okay? 666. John 6, 6, 6, he says, eat my flesh, drink my blood. This is a crazy verse. And then, and then what happens? It says, upon hearing this, many of his disciples turned away from him and did not follow him any longer. Is he losing sheep here? Is this a, you know, it's a tension. Is he losing stuff or is he not losing stuff? I mean, I've, I haven't lost one, he says. All right, so uh, I just shared a few weeks ago on the light of the world, this chapter eight, it's very, that was a very contentious chapter, and he says right in the middle, many heard his voice, they believed in what he said, and then he said to them, if you are truly my disciple, if you're a true disciple, you'll abide in my word. Truly, like a true disciple, what is a true disciple? Is there a distinction? Is there a false disciple? Is there a false branch? What about this would even matter to them on this night? On a night maybe where they don't know who to trust. On a night maybe where they're about to abandon their rabbi and feel an intense amount of guilt and shame. I think it would mean a lot for them to hear that there's a gardener, there's a gardener who, who knows about this stuff. You're not that gardener. That's a reassuring thing for me to hear because if I'm in charge, I'm cutting everybody off. <coughs> if I'm in charge, I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to say it's fruit today or, if, or we'll wait for fruit. It's like I feel this 
if, if I slip into being the gardener, I feel this pressure to just be like, well, that person doesn't have any fruit, so, or they haven't been doing anything, or they're just taking, or I'm doing this, you know, and I need to hear this word to say, your father is into this. He knows who's who. He knows what's going on. He's able to separate. He knows how to make you healthy. He knows how to protect you from uh, dead things that are around you. This is his job. He's gonna do this. That would mean something to me. It would mean something to me also to think through what he means by prune. What's this pruning process? Is it like the next verse he says, uh, you are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. That word clean is kind of a word play and it works together with the word prune. It's hard to see in English. But for some reason, he says, because of the word I have spoken to you, you're already, you've been pruned already. So there's some connection between Jesus' word, like, not a word, okay, and a magic word, <laughs> the totality of his teaching, all right, the message of the gospel works like a sharp knife to prune a place that might be dead or might be not bearing fruit so that it makes space to bear even more fruit. You think about it. Is there a branch in you or, you know, coming off of your branch or something? At one point, it looked good. At one point, it looked like it was gonna bear some fruit. Used to wood. It used to believe, it used to believe that it was gonna bear fruit and, and now it's just starting to get a little dead. It's starting to shrivel up. It's been a while since there was any life in that branch. How, what is the process of that branch getting cut off and in that, pla- that same place, more fruit coming out of it? The process is by, the guard, by God and by Jesus speaking the message to you, to that place and saying, from that place, I wanna cut off what's old and see new life. Okay, so think, keep going there with me. Is there something that used to have a strong belief and now it's just starting to kind of fade? Can God speak to that place? There used to be a branch growing out of belief that uh, in, the, in the word of Christ for your you know, son, that he could do something in the life of your daughter, brother. And now it's just, just starting to feel like there's no life in that branch anymore. I don't know if it's gonna work out. And then you bring that to God and, and, and God is gonna cut that and say, I can, I can through speaking the word of Christ into that place, it's, I believe, I believe we can, we can see a lot of fruit there. Let him do that work in your life. Feel like, uh, what are you jaded to? I mean, do you feel like, I used to think that the church could do so much, but now it's just so messy, I don't know if I can, I can believe it anymore. And what is the gospel to you? Is the gospel, the word of Christ, still mean something big? Or is it just a small club and a small thing, and I don't really know if this is gonna work out anymore? Is it, ask them, ask God to to cut into you and prune and put the word of Christ in you again so that you can grow. Ask him, tell me, does the word still mean something that can transform the universe? Does the gospel still do stuff like uh, fight against the cosmic evil powers of this this world? Does the gospel still do big things like that? Can, Can Christ still restore sight to the blind? 
Can he reach my son? Can you tell me? I believe you can. Can you uh, set captives free? Is, the, is that starting to get weak? He will prune that off and he will, will raise you up to a healthier, more fruitful place if we let him if we open our hearts up to him and let him speak that word to us. And I wanna see that. I see that so much at Crossroads. People who are just willing to rend their heart and say, uh, Lord, speak like a sharp sword. Help me discern, help cut away things and help me to be healthy and fruitful. And I'm speaking to you if you're feeling feeble and if you're feeling like, uh, like this thing is losing some effort and losing some steam. Or maybe your identity is feeling like it's just shriveling up a little bit. Let him speak to you and tell you who you really are. How he's raised you up to seat at his right hand in heavenly realms. How he's blessed you, unbelievable, with spiritual blessings in Christ. How he, has, he would give his life for you. He would do anything for you. He wants you to be healthy. He wants you to have a, an inspiration of, of the gospel in your life that's so fruitful, even in places that, that once that have lost some steam. Amen. He prunes. And knowing that, even on a night like they're about to experience where they're, I don't know what's gonna happen, and, and knowing that God will, will prune them and bring them even to a more fruitful, fruitful place is a meaningful message. Center our lives around that. The gardener. Okay, I'm gonna talk for a second about the vine. The vine is really cool because it is the source of life and direction. Okay, the vine and the branch are connected, so I'm gonna get a little uh, messy here, okay, but go with me. Jesus gets pretty specific, and every time he gets specific, you know, it's kinda nice, because he doesn't do it all the time. He doesn't draw lines all the time, and so I always pay attention. If there's one, he's like, I'm gonna draw a hard line here, right? He does, he says, if you abide in me, and I abide in you, you will, you will bear fruit, okay? One guarantee, and if you don't, you will not, you can do nothing. <laughs> it's a guarantee. <laughs> Bank on it. So just ask, this is one of the easy ones. Okay, ask yourself, can my blank, can my relationship, what, 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 if you're dating somebody, can, I, can my dating relationship, apart from Christ, bear fruit? Can it do anything? Can my marriage, can my job, can my plan, can my passion, apart from Christ, not connected to Christ, can it bear any fruit? No. It's not gonna happen. It's going to, it's going to fade out. It's going to die. It's going to be too much. If you put the pressure on somebody, if you're married to them, or if you're dating, or if you're in a friendship, and you put the pressure on them to give you life, it's gonna bleed out, it's going to suffer, it is going to die. If you put the pressure on somebody and say, give me my validation, give me my source of, of life, or give me my, be my source of, of affirmation, it's going to be too much, it's gonna crush it. That person, that relationship, that field, that plan, that goal, not gonna be, not gonna be enough to give you what you need in your life. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We're so into connection, you know. It's just, this is a really good point to just think through. 
There's so many things we're connect, we're, we love the connection, the Wi-Fi, you know, the news, the apps. Me and Will have this thing on our phones where we can see where each other are. There's no reason for it. I'm sitting around one day, I, sometimes I'm just like, I wonder what Will's doing. I look on that and he's in Home Depot and I'm like, huh. There's nothing, I can't do anything with that. I'm not gonna, you know, but it's like, we're connected, <laughs> sort of. We got a connection center here at the, in the foyer. We got connecting opportunities. The question that when people double down at Crossroads, it's like, how can I get connected? It's fine. It's all fine. It's good. But the primary source of connection cannot start to become each other, cannot start to become your church. Be connected to the church is not the thing that gives you life and, and, and all your validation, cannot be the primary place where you start to get your sustenance from. Your political side, your country, your ideals, your family, this is not the place where we get our, where we get our life and our validation from, or winning or losing uh, sports games, I mean, Come on. People who watch sports sometimes feel more of a loss than the players. <laughs> it's such an unhealthy connection, you know, to the, not the player, but the clothes the player is wearing. If a player leaves the team, they are dead to you, right? It's not like you're connected to them. It's the jersey. We have to figure out our orientation of being, getting our, our source of life from the vine. It's not a battery that you can put in. It's not, I'm not talking about a physical battery, but I'm also not talking about something that's just mental. It's not something that you just, it's like worship. It's something that you do mentally um, believe in, but it's something that you also live in you outpour your, your walk of life in and exist in this reality that's meaningful to you. That's, that's what Jesus means when he says, pick up your cross and follow me. And if you seek to save your life, you're gonna lose it. But if you lose your life for me, for my sake, you're gonna, in that, you're gonna find life. It will, as you're, okay, he says it in this passage, abide in me, my love abide in you and love each other with the love that I've loved you with. I like to say a branch has two ends. One is, is flowing in, and then one is letting out. One is flowing in with the love that, that I have loved you with, that with that you shall love one another. In that process, it's gonna be life. I could boil down all the fruit, okay, if we wanna talk about fruit. This is like the most controversial thing to talk about. Where's the fruit? It's in, I think, because it's from the source of the vine that, that, that fruit comes off of the branch. I think I could boil it down to acts of self-sacrificial love. When somebody eats that, when somebody picks that grape off and eats it, it tastes good, that's what, that's what we're talking about. When somebody in your life 
When you have an act of self-sacrificial love for somebody, that's when they're starting to feel the fruit of your connection to Christ in their life. When you lay your life down for somebody, you know, at work or somebody who's, who you're coming in contact with on a regular basis, and they start to see Christ in you, that's gonna be the fruit. That's the only fruit that we care about. I have a vision for this church to be a, a group of people who become less so that Christ can become more. You know, when, when, when the Apostle Paul says to the church in Galatia, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I've been crucified to the world. He says to them, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Jesus Christ was crucified before your very eyes. And I'm reading that, and I'm thinking, how many of them were there? Were any of them there? Or was it good enough for him to just say, you saw me? I can't tell you how awesome I think it would be is if um, all of us knew somebody and they didn't know Jesus. They didn't know the story. They didn't know anything about it. We continue to love them with the self-sacrificial love of Christ and then one day, somebody starts talking to them about Jesus and they say, I think you got the name in the story wrong. I know the story, but you're not talking about Jesus. You know, you're talking about Steve. You're talking about Tennyson. You're talking about sports. It's not, you know, I'm not saying we don't talk about Jesus anymore, but I mean, come on. Wouldn't it be an honor if somebody was like, oh, I already know Jesus. I know those people at Crossroads. I don't know. I don't know if there's a higher honor than to be confused uh, with the one that's our greatest champion. Or to be able to say to somebody, you don't know who Jesus is, just just look at me. And through the self-sacrificial love that I love you, um, you'll know. Last thing I want to talk about is the branches, the, the tenor of connection. The way the branch is connected, okay, this is just a thought that I had. Because I've been kind of perplexed by a couple verses throughout my life in this passage, and it revealed some major unhealth in me. Um, the one's about prayer. Anybody ever look at that and he says, okay, ask anything you wish and it'll be yours. And then, you know, you do it and it's like it doesn't happen. I mean, what are we, and so this is, then I started to think, okay, I didn't ask right. So I have to rub the lamp a certain way in order to get the your wish is my command moment, you know. Or my other, you know, this is the other thing, right, which is, well, once you become so much like Jesus, you can, the things you'll pray for are the things he would have been doing anyways. And so ask whatever you wish. And it's like, if, if it was exactly what Jesus was gonna do anyways, it'll come true, and that's what the verse means? Which, I don't know, it just doesn't seem notable for him to say that. It seems obvious, of course, if Jesus and I were exactly the same, we would pick the same pair of sandals. But it's not like, that's not gonna like get them through the night. Uh, 
All right, so thinking about prayer and thinking about prayer like this, it reminds, it, it, it's confronted in verse 15, 16, when he says to them, you're a friend. When he says, you're no longer a slave, but you're a friend. You know what's going on. I've brought you into this. I started to think, okay, if I, have a, I can read these verses from the mindset of a slave. Because a slave is contractual, calculated, trying to do this to get that. <coughs> a slave doesn't see these verses as a means of grace, but a means of control. How do I get the thing that I wanted? How do I make sure I'm bearing fruit, you know? But friendship is organic. It's, it's intimate, it's connected through all kinds of complicated nuance. Yeah, if, if you're a friend and, you, and I ask, okay, if I ask my friend for money, they're, they're probably just gonna give it to me. I mean, we're friends. Or they'll know what I'm really asking for if I'm asking for help or something. Like, they'll know because we're friends. So friends are there for each other. And as I started thinking about this, I hope this isn't too confusing, but I, I'm trying to develop uh, or uncover the way that I've often read the Bible was not from the companion, not from the brother, not from the perspective of the, the son, the person who belongs here, from the person who might not be here very much long if I don't do things the right way or from the slave side of things. And I want, if, if that's just more than me, if it's just maybe another person who reads the Bible in that way, I wanna invite you to let that go to receive the status that he says, friend, companion, complicated, connected relationship, once reserved for people like Moses and Abraham. So I'm gonna invite the band back up for a time of prayer. But uh, to end, I kinda just thought I could use my imagination a little bit and think through the propositions of this passage from the perspective of how a slave would hear it, and then leave that and think of the propositions in this, or, you know, in this passage from, from the standpoint of how a friend would hear it. And I want you to be confused. I'm gonna just, it's like a filter thing, right? It's, this is the DSV. You know, like I like to say, this is, this is me just trying to filter through this stuff from an unhealthy perspective and then filter through it from a healthy perspective and then we can pray from there, okay? So um, just let's just sync up and pray a little bit here through, through this. And so listen to what it would sound like. What are some of the things that would sound like from a slave? I'm the vine, you're the branch. My father's the gardener. Apart from me, you can do nothing and you're lucky to really even be here. Better be careful. If you're not bearing enough fruit, I don't know how much longer we can stand or tolerate you uh, being here and so you might get cut off and bundled up and thrown away. If you loved me, you would obey me. But that disobedience, that tells me a lot about if you really love me or not. Maybe you don't. Um, if, you, if you 
lay your life down for me, then I know that you're my friend. Ask whatever you want, and if I happen to be wanting that same thing, I'll give it to you. It's the Father's will that you would bear fruit that would last. Your fruit doesn't last. What's wrong with you? If any of those things, um, if even one of those things, you know, is part of your theology or part of your relationship, let's uh, repent of that. I don't. I just don't think that's what he's saying. What if he was saying something like this? Uh, my father's a gardener who is just really into taking care of us, and making sure that we're healthy and sustainable and, and headed toward uh, a, a fruition, a fruitful life. We're connected like a vine and a branch are connected through an organic, intimate connection. We're like friends. Ask me whatever you want. I'm we're on the same team. Ask me whatever you want. I'll be there for you. I'll help you with that. I want you to bear fruit. Us being connected is going to be the means for that. And, and, and us being disconnected would be bad. Would not is not ideal. It's not what we want. Let's stay together. I will do anything to make sure we're together, that we stay together. I'll give my life for you. As a matter of fact, that's the greatest act of sacrifice and love that I can think of, is to lay my life down. And I want to call you into that so that there's fruit growing all over our relationship for people to take and eat and experience how good this is, how good this tastes. And if you don't know what to do, um, just love me, and that will be counted as obedience. I want you to know your labor matters and I want it to last. I want it to last as long as possible and be as meaningful as possible. And so just to reiterate, uh, love one another. That's the way this is gonna be as meaningful as possible. Lay your life down with a self-sacrificial love. Father in heaven, may it be May it be so that that second way of thinking, um, like a friend, be such an indelible, permanent place in our existence that we abide, that we abide in that. We exist in that reality, in our comings and goings in this life, and that uh, this church that I love so much would be uh, pruned by your gospel and by your message, and that that place of pruning each week and each day would start to grow more and more fruit so that uh, this world, this city can start to see in the eyes of the people here and in the lives of the people here, you and how much you love them and how desperately you wanna be connected to them and give them life, abundant life. Speak these things to us so that your joy might be in us and your joy might be made complete. Amen.